Christ for our attention this morning, and I hope you're, you're ready to listen. I have a lot to say. I'll try to be brief but, but pointed about what we have to say. For several years now, every Sunday morning, we come to the Gospel of Luke. It's been since 2016, and we've had a few uh, uh, various interruptions where we've done some other things, but what a joy to come to the Gospel of Luke and just look at the life of Jesus. Things he's done, things he's said, it has been uh, just a privilege to look at this, and we're getting close now. I think one more, one or two more messages, and we'll be into the final week of the Lord. Uh, the, the triumphal entry is uh, here later in chapter 19, and then the rest of the section of Luke is all about the last week of Christ, which will be a blessing for us to study. So you can see in the time frame of Jesus' life, we're at the very end. He's actually making his way to Jerusalem. In fact, back in Luke 9, verse 51, it says, The days were drawing near for him to be taken up, and he set his face, set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is actually a, a fulfillment of a prediction from Isaiah chapter 50, when it says the Savior would set his face like a flint for the mission that he had. In other words, Jesus is determined. Set his face like a flint is just a phrase that means a hardness, a stubbornness. Jesus would not be deterred from the duty that he came to fulfill that is going to the cross. You can imagine an event that you do not like to go to, a third grade music recital, for instance, where you know it's going to be like disaster time or uh, some appointment that you're, that you're not looking forward to, a, a gathering, a, maybe a work gathering that you're not excited to go to, and, and you think of all the excuses that you can do to avoid that gathering, Jesus going to perhaps the worst event of human history to bear the weight of sin, and he is determined. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Determined Christ is to go to the cross to fulfill what had been written by the prophets. In Luke 18, 31 to 33, which we just looked at two weeks ago, we see a description of what he is setting his face to go to. Do you see it in verse 32? He will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be shamefully mistreated. He will be spit upon. He will be flogged. He will die. That's what he's setting his face towards. Not for something that he had done wrong, right? He was going to the cross for you and for me, for the sins of the whole world. So since Luke 9, so nine chapters, we have been witnessing the resolve of Jesus to fulfill his messianic mission, to offer his life in our place, to provide a way for us to escape the wrath of God that we deserved. He would bear it. He took our sins in his body on the tree. Praise God for that. Now, if you've never experienced that, today could be that day. Even closer now to Jerusalem, he's entering Jericho. You see it in verse 35. Everybody got your Bibles open to where we were. We won't read what we read earlier. But in verse 35 of Luke 18, it says he drew near to Jericho. Jericho is about the oldest inhabited, continually inhabited city in the world. There are still people living in Jericho today. And of course, Jericho is probably best known as the city that the, uh, was marched around by Joshua and they blew the horns and it fell down. Well, in Jesus' day, Jericho was a, a, uh, a, well, there's two ways we can describe it. One way is that it was commonly traveled as people were heading to Jerusalem. They would 
uh, make their way into Jericho, which Jericho was about 17 miles to the northwest, if you can think of Israel, Jerusalem here, Jericho about 17 miles in this direction, and people from Galilee would come down through Jericho so they could avoid going through Samaria. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you could look at that and see what I'm talking about. So lots of people would make this pilgrimage through Jericho to, to make their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, which was coming up. Remember, Jesus was actually killed on the Passover, and we're getting very, very close to that time in history. So probably this is a very well-traveled area, and it was also a very lucrative place. In fact, two times in the Old Testament, Jericho is called the City of Palms. It was an oasis in the desert which flourished with dates, palms, bananas, balsam, and of course, as we're going to find out in Luke 19, sycamore trees. It's a very lucrative setting. It was a place where a lot of people were very rich, and as we see, some people were not. Some were left out. Um, so as Jesus is drawing near to Jericho, he's going to have two encounters. So we're going to split up the lesson today between these two encounters, one with the blind man and one with uh, Zacchaeus. So let's start with looking at the blind man, Luke 18, verses 35 to 43. Let's look at how this man is described by Luke. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. That's, that's, the, that's his description. This is, this is uh, recorded for us in a couple other Gospels. Luke leaves his name out. He doesn't, in, in other Gospels, it says there's two guys. Luke specifically focuses on this guy. First of all, in Luke's passage, he's nameless. Uh, he's also penniless. He seems to be friendless because he's got no one with him, and he's sitting on the road. I mean, this is a pretty pathetic sight, sitting, on, sitting by the side of the road, and he's begging, so he's useless, helpless. Think of all this. Helpless, useless, penniless, friendless, nameless. This guy is, would be a complete and total nothing in the community. Uh, when I lived in Chicago for four years when I was going to school, we'd walk the streets of the city at night or even during the day, and there'd be people in the alleys who were uh, hard up or down on their luck, and they'd be sitting there with a blanket on, and they'd have a cup out and virtually ignored by almost everybody as they walked past. And you can imagine that this is the case for this individual. No one is really concerned about him. He's, in fact, later he's going to be kind of silenced when he wants to speak up and ask for Jesus' help. He's a hopeless individual. This is a, this is a terrible existence. He is, he is totally and completely dependent on the concern and kindness of others. What can he provide society? He can't see. Um, he, has, he has nothing to give to, to society as, as far as from society's perspective. We know that every person, of course, is created in the image of God. He also stands in complete contrast. If you look back in your Bibles, just a couple of sections to Luke 18, verse 18, we have this rich ruler who is young. He has everything. Blind man has nothing. You see the difference here? Luke does this almost all the time in his gospel where he puts these two pairs together and then so we can compare the two. You have this rich, young ruler. As far as society is concerned, he has everything. He has position. He has privilege. He has possessions. He has power. Blind man has nothing. And yet the rich man is going to walk away from Christ with nothing, and the blind man is going to walk after Christ with everything. See what Luke's done here? So in which position would you prefer to be? Right, The rich man who has everything from a society perspective, right, driving the limo, got season tickets to the Wolverines, Right? You got, you got the beach house up north. You got a retirement home in Florida. You got everything, but you're without Christ. So in reality, you have nothing. 
Or would you rather be the, the down-and-out person who's going to Grace Centers of Hope or sitting at a rescue mission but actually knows the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? What, is, what does Psalms tell us? It's better to be a doorkeeper uh, in the house of the king than, than, a, than a king somewhere else. I know I'm paraphrasing that wrong. But uh, the idea is it's better to be the lowest of the low in the kingdom than the highest of the high outside of the kingdom. And let that be an encouragement to us. He is a man who is unnoticed and silenced by the crowd, but will have an encounter with this gentle shepherd that we've just been talking about. When the blind man lacked what the blind man lacked in eyesight, he made up for in insight. Note the exchange here, okay? The blind man is sitting by the roadside begging. Jesus, with his followers, and probably a huge crowd of people too, is making his way to Jerusalem. Remember, set his face. He's going there to be killed. The last week of his life is coming. Huge crowd. He's doing these miracles. In fact, this will be his last miracle that's recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. But the people are curious about the signs. They want to follow this rabbi who's doing these cool things. And the blind man must have heard about this because he cries out. But if we, if we see what happens here, he, he, of course, can't see, so he starts asking the crowd, verse number 36, what's this noise I hear? And the crowd says to him, verse 37, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out. I, I, I wish I could shout it really loud, but the windows are open, and if people are walking by, it might seem strange. But Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd's like, shh, 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 shh. That's verse 36. Rebuked him. Shut up, old man. I don't know if he's an old guy, but sh you know, shut up. Quiet. You are undeserving of a great one's attention. Let us, let us handle this. We, we will connect with the Christ. You keep your place. Now notice, even though the crowd has the opportunity to connect with Christ, they are wrong about Christ. Look at the names by which he is called. Just looking in your Bible, what does the crowd call him? You can answer out loud. What does the crowd call Jesus? That's what, that's what the blind man calls him. Je the, the crowd calls him who? Jesus of Nazareth. See the difference? Verse 37, they, that is the crowd, they told him, blind man, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Then he, that is the blind man, as Dave just said, Jesus, son of David. The, the crowd calls him by his mundane, earthly title. The blind man calls him by his heavenly, messianic title, son of David. All the crowd could see was, this is the carpenter's son. This is Joseph's boy, Jesus from Nazareth. Remember when we talked about Nazareth way back in Luke chapter 4, it was a city of, uh, of lowlifes. It was not a... It was not a um, in fact, one of the disciples, when he found out the Messiah had claimed to come from Nazareth, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This may have even been a little bit of a slight by the crowd. It at least was just a, an incomplete opinion of Jesus to call him Jesus of Nazareth. That's how they described him. It would be very unusual for anyone significant to come out of that area of northern Israel. The blind man, however, calls him son of David, and this is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus is called this. And to hear this term would be impossible without connecting it to the, to the title of David, the king of Israel, the messianic claim. Now, just to give you a little Old Testament history, when David, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God entered into a covenant with David and said, I'm going to bless you in a very special way. 
you are going to have a king from your line that will always and eternally be on the throne of Israel. Your, your, your seed will never depart from the throne of Israel. And through that seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so from that, the understanding of the people of Israel was that the Messiah, the word that means chosen one, anointed one, the deliverer of God's people, would come from the line of David. So the term son of David became a phrase that was used to describe this Messiah that would come. The people called him Jesus Nazareth. The blind man, like I said, lacked eyesight, but he made up for it an insight, knew that this was, I don't know how he knew this, but he believed that this was the coming Messiah, son of David. In Luke 4, Jesus got up in his hometown in the synagogue in Nazareth and read from Isaiah 61, which includes the idea of this, that the Messiah would come, Luke 4.18, to give recovery of the sight to the blind. And here he's going to do that. Ironically, it is the blind man who saw and the seeing crowd that was blind to the reality of who Jesus was. They even rebuked the blind man, telling him to be quiet as he's announcing the Messiah. Maybe it's because they disagree with him. Maybe it's because they want him to just kind of be silenced there and out of the picture. But, but his, his being rebuked and silence only intensifies his desire. It only causes him to cry out louder. This is in uh, verse number uh, 39. He cried out all the more, and he repeats what he said. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's a fascinating concept. The word mercy here means to show compassion on someone who is enduring the consequences of sin. The beggar is saying, Son of David, Christ, help me. I'm experiencing the consequences of sin. Now, he's not blind because of some sin he committed. Remember, we've talked about this in the past. A lot of times people think that if someone endures some sort of problem, oh, you know, oh, you had a miscarriage, oh, you have cancer, oh, you got in a car wreck, you must be in sin of some, in some way. That's not true. That's not a biblical concept. But the idea that we have miscarriages, car accidents, and cancer is a result of all of us being in a sin-cursed world. You understand that? Now, there's no doubt that certain actions will be, there will be certain consequences for sin. If I go up to the Speedway today and take six, six Kit Kats without paying, I'm going to face some consequences. But, but to say that, oh, you know, I, I, I've told you before about, oh, I got a flat tire, God must be punishing me. That, that's not the way uh, God's justice works. But this blind man was simply blind, just as many of us have friends or family members that we know that have physical or other ailments, and it's simply because uh, we live in this sin-cursed world. And I think what the man is saying here, even in ha saying, have mercy on me, is he's admitting that of himself. He's admitting that of himself. The blind man realizes that it's only Jesus who can meet this need, solve his problem. He cries out desperately. He doesn't care what everybody else is saying about him. He, he knows this is, maybe he knows this is his one chance, his only hope. Like in God's providence, Jesus is passing my way and nothing is going to stop me from calling out to him and having him help me. And the interaction here, this, this there's just a beautiful thing and I'm going to come back to it later because it, it, it kind of stops me in my tracks when I read it. Will you look at your Bibles real quick? I want you to see this. Just, re, just to review, he cried out in verse 38, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in the crowd rebuked him, or front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, seeing he's in the back behind everybody. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This is what gets me. And Jesus 
stopped. Jesus stopped. I just like that. I just, I just like that. Jesus heard and stopped. I'm going to come back to that later. Jesus was concerned enough about the man. The crowds are pushing in. He, I don't even know if he could see the blind man because it says in the front, maybe he's sitting in the back. He's being told to be quiet, but Jesus stops in verse 40 and commands him to be brought to him. Says, what do you want me to do? Guy says, let me recover my sight. In fact, he says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Notice the word Lord, respect to this Messiah, respect to the son of David. And then like faith healers of our day, the recovery of the blind man is immediate, right? It is, it is, you know, this nonsense of these faith healers who say you have a short leg or he healed you of some inner disease that no one can see, that's nonsense. This healing, whenever Jesus healed, it is immediate and it is also very, let, let's say it this way, it is significant because it is predicted of the messianic ministry that he, he would heal the blind, but more than that, it is symbolic because light has replaced darkness. It is not just that the blind man can see physically, but it's a symbol that the blind man's spiritual darkness has gone away. He now truly understands who Jesus is, and we can say that because Jesus says in verse 42, recover your sight. I, I just love this. Uh, wouldn't you love this? Lord, let me recover my sight. The, the, the gall to ask that question, could you, could you imagine the faith that it would take to ask that question? Who can do that, Right? Like if you have some sort of ailment today, let's say, let's say that I'm struggling with, uh, with some sort of obvious medical problem, right? I'm a diabetic and, and I'm, Derek, would you heal my diabetes, right? I mean, what, what, kind of, what kind of faith would that take? What kind of confidence must I have in this person? The blind man saw Jesus as the way to have that problem solved, but Jesus answers by saying, your faith has made you well. The word well there means saved or delivered. I don't think Jesus is just saying, now you can see again. He's saying, now you have entered into the kingdom of God because you have exercised faith and confidence in Jesus alone to solve your problem. So significant in that it, it was predicted that Messiah would heal the blind. Everybody around should have saw that. All these people who are so knowledgeable about the Bible would read all about the Messiah in Isaiah 61 and would read that he's going to come and he's going to give light to the, to the blind, he's going to help them to see. And then they see it happen, and they still don't necessarily believe, although it does say they gave praise and glorified God. The response of the man is to follow immediately and glorify God. He, he demonstrates a deep reality that those who are changed by Christ give their lives to Christ. Jesus affirms that this man's faith demonstrates that not just sight, but also that salvation was granted. And there's great praise and great glorifying of God. You kind of get mad at the crowd here because they shushed him, and now they're praising God for it. Story number one. Let's look at story number two. We'll make the applications at the end. Story number two. That's the blind man. Story number two is Zacchaeus. And here again, we have a pair. Luke is using a pair of people. And they're both either near Jericho or in Jericho. In verse 35, it says the blind man's maybe on the outskirts of Jericho, and now he's in Jericho, and he meets Zacchaeus, who was a wee little man. Yes, a wee little man was he. They, that song is too bad because it, it kind of makes trite for us. I mean, it's wonderful for children, but kind of makes this story trite. This is a pretty awesome conversion story, maybe one of the best in the Bible. But Zacchaeus is completely different. 
yet very much the same as the blind man. Think about this with me for just a second, rather than me just give it all to you. Think about ways that Zacchaeus was different than the blind man, and think about ways that he was the same. Starting with different, those, 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 uh, those, those are pretty clear, right? Blind man, poor, Zacchaeus, rich. Uh, blind man, helpless, Zacchaeus, great job. And, you know, he's got a way to sustain himself. But they were, they were very much the same in that both were outcasts from society. Both were cast off by, by the, the rest of the people in the community. The blind man, because he, were, he was perceived unworthy, and Zacchaeus, because he was perceived as a sinner. He was perceived as a cheat and a defrauder of people, which he was. Both were ignored and looked down upon. Zacchaeus maybe even teased because he was a shrimp. Scripture tells us he was short in stature. But the idea that, that they're the same, right, and that they are the outcasts from society, ignored and looked down upon, but in very different, what Luke is saying here is that the gospel is for both of these types of people. The gospel isn't just for poor people. The gospel isn't just for well-to-do people. The gospel isn't just for men. The gospel isn't just for women. The gospel isn't just for Americans who are white. The gospel is for all people, all ethnicities. The Bible tells us in Revelation that there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation who will be gathered. Bible, the gospel is not just something for children. How many of the pe- parents send their kids to Grace Kids because they think their children need to have the gospel, yet they don't see it for themselves? The Bible is for children, teens, adults, the elderly. It's for all people, all ages, all races, all uh, classes of people, all, uh, anyone who will turn in faith to Jesus can have salvation. That is the great gospel news. Anybody can have it if they will do what Christ commands. Now, again, this is a familiar story uh, set in that old Sunday school song, which I just quoted to you, and maybe the significance is lost due to the simple nature of that song. But no question, it's the pairing. It's also possible that Luke is pairing Zacchaeus with another person in the gospel. Back in Luke 13, there's the lady I called Bent Over Betty. Remember when we had that lesson? She was the lady with the stiff back that couldn't stand up. Her name wasn't Betty. I just, for some reason, I called her that. But Jesus called that lady, when she, when she was healed and was saved, she called that lady a daughter of Abraham. And notice in Luke 19, verse number 9, he calls Zacchaeus a son of Abraham. So there we have a woman coming to Christ, and we have a man coming to Christ. I'm just trying to show you through all of these different connections, that the gospel's for everybody. No one should sit here in this auditorium to say, and, and, and can say, well, the gospel isn't for me. Jesus doesn't love me. Right? It's good for people like you who've grown up in the church, who, have, who maybe have a reputation of being a good... No, the gospel is for you. The gospel is for everybody. You need the gospel, and it's for you. Anyway, so Zacchaeus is introduced right away in a very bad light. Look at Luke 19. He's called, verse number 2, a chief tax collector. We don't even see that word in Greek literature until the 4th century, as far as chief. That's a word that Luke uses to describe a tax collector that no other Greek writer, not just in the Bible, but that no other Greek writer in history used until 300 years later. So Luke is pulling this word in and calling this guy, whether it means that Zacchaeus is first in rank above all other tax collectors, or he is just a well-known tax collector, a major tax collector, it's unclear. But Luke is making sure that we understand that this is his, this is his title. This is who he is. He is a guy who collects taxes, and we know from our understanding of Scripture what that type of person was thought as. Because... 
I've talked to you about this before, about a mochaz. You, you got the big mochaz and little mochaz. In other words, you got the tax collector, and then he's got other tax collectors under him. Can you imagine, like, a, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but imagine a law firm like Smith, 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 and Jones. Or, you know, they got that last guy that's got the different name. But you got the head guy and all the other guys working under him. Well, when these guys work, I mean, I don't know if it's like a pyramid scheme, but this guy gets part of that too. Well, the tax collector, especially the chief tax collector, yeah, he would be collecting taxes of people, pilgrimaging to, through the city, right? Hey, you, you want to walk on this road, it's such and such a money, it's such. Or the buying and purchasing of, I said there was a lucrative place with lots of buying and selling, business center. And so, hey, we got to take our top, our, ours off the top, and Zacchaeus would just increase that a little bit. Could you imagine if there wasn't a standard like that, 6% sales tax in Michigan? Could you imagine you want to go uh, get your groceries, but uh, AMP, I know that's an old reference, but AMP says, well, our tax here is 15%. That's kind of what a tax collector. So we'll give our 6% to Michigan, and the 9% goes right into my pockets, and there's nothing you can do about it. If you want groceries, you pay the 15%. I'm trying to give you the analogy. And so we would hate the AMP guy. But we had to have our groceries. You would hate Zacchaeus, but you had to go on this road. You had to buy and sell. So not only would Zacchaeus get his own, but he was probably also being greased by all the other tax collectors underneath him. And he's loaded. Scripture tells us he is wealthy. Zacchaeus is a, is a crook. He's an extortioner. He even says it. Look down in verse number 8. If you've got your Bibles open still, look down in verse number 8 of Luke 19. This is going to be what we come to the end to here in just a minute. Um, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have, here's the word, defrauded anybody. Defrauded. The word, word means to extort people. He, and that's exactly what I was describing that he was doing. Through deceit and fraud, becoming wealthy on the backs of others. He was hated, despised, and an outcast. So he's hated for a different reason or, or outcast for a different reason than the blind guy on the way into Jericho, but probably the same feelings. No friends, no relationships, no connections, and maybe a little bit lost. He hears that Jesus is coming into the city, and he is curious about this, but I don't think he's yet aware of Jesus' true identity. Look in verse number uh, 2. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. He was rich. He was seeking. That word is in a tense that means he was continuously doing this. He, in other words, maybe he had, a, a, he had heard about Jesus. He was, he was continually curious about who he was, but could not see because he was small. He climbs up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see, right? That little song. The crowd is large, and he is short. He climbs out onto a limb. The sycamore leaves have uh, sycamore tree has easy branches to climb up and big leaves that might even conceal him in the tree. And now Jesus enters the story and takes over, and he demonstrates complete control. Now I want to connect two words with you. Verse number five: Zacchaeus. <laughs> I mean, this adult man climbing a tree. I mean, this is a strange story, but he's in that tree wanting to see Jesus. Verse five: Jesus came to the place. Here's what I want to connect back with stopped in verse 40. Verse 40, Jesus stopped. And in verse 5 of chapter 19, Jesus looked. See that? Jesus is initiating the meetings with both of them. See that? 
He stops for the blind man. He looks at Zacchaeus. Jesus could have kept walking, could have waved to Zacchaeus, give him a little salute, ignored him completely like everybody else. He looks at Zacchaeus, and he takes over the whole situation. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. This is quite a scene of events. Jesus directing the entire course of everything. The word must in verse number five is that same word I've described to you over the last several weeks It is the must of divine necessity. Jesus is not leaving Jericho until he goes to Zacchaeus' house. He calls Zacchaeus with great boldness, even verging on rudeness, imposing himself, saying, I'm coming over today. And for Jesus, this is an urgent matter. Look at the two words he uses. Hurry, hurry, and come down. I must go to your house today. I'm going to say this again at the end, but responding to Jesus is an urgent matter. It is not something to wait on. It is not, it is not, uh, we, we, we talked in Sunday school about this too. There, there are millions of things in our bodies that could go wrong at any minute. I mean, we've known people, we've known people. Is that the scripture I hear? Is this the scripture? Run! Hurry! <laughs> um, sometimes that'll happen because I got my phone up here. I'll, like, I'll say something that sounds like Siri. I'll say, are you serious? And it'll come, I don't understand what you want me to say. Anyway, let's, let's get back to it. What was I talking about before? What? Oh, yes, things going wrong in our body. We, we tend to think that we have this invincibility about us. And we've all known people that, boy, Jim was at work yesterday and he died right? Um, I mean, that happened to my own father. I mean, obviously he had some health concerns and issues. It wasn't, but, it, but none of us have an understanding or, or a guarantee, we should say, that, well, I'll think about this for the rest of the week, and maybe I'll come back next Sunday and hear more. A very famous historical lesson for that is the Great Fire of Chicago when D.L. Moody gave the gospel, and he even said something at the end of his message, like, come back next week, and We'll talk about this, and then that night, the great fire of Chicago hit, and many people were lost. There, there are no guarantees, and so the words hurry today are important. If you want to respond to Christ, do not delay. But Jesus, again, is the one initiating these conversations, imposing himself on both the blind man and Zacchaeus. Can you imagine Zacchaeus' feeling after being outcast by all of society? Now the important rabbi is inviting him over to his own home. He must have been a little bit proud about that. But the whole scenario is completely unexpected. The rabbi and the tax collector, people were very upset. Look at verse number 7. The, the contrast is great because verse end of verse 6, the word is joyfully. In other words, Zacchaeus received him joyfully. And then the people, when they saw that, they grumbled. Where there is praise on one hand, there is a protest on the other. Where there is joy, there is judgment. Where there is gladness, there is grumbling. The per- person who is receiving Christ... Is thrilled about it. And then there's all these other religious people that say, hey, 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 that guy's not worthy of Jesus' attention. Let that be a lesson to all of us and a rebuke to any of us who would claim that there is anyone who is undeserving of Christ, but we are. Oh, that's a horrible, horrible pharisaical attitude for us to have. We must have a love and a concern for others just as Christ did. 
The crowd is upset because Jesus was in the presence of a sinner, and perhaps what they're really revealing is that they don't see themselves to be sinful. Right? He is going to be the guest in the house of a man who is a sinner. We're not is the implication. Right? We're not sinners. He is. The crowd is not in sync at all with the, mystery of, with the ministry of Jesus. Luke 19 and 10 says the Son of Man came to seek and save sinners. Save those who were lost. The crowd is saying you ought not go with those people because they're sinners. Jesus is saying that's why I'm here. Right? Think about our own attitudes in all of this, right? It's a throwback to the older brother and the prodigal son when the younger brother comes home and gets all the inheritance and the older brother says, hey, there was never a party for me, Dad. We, we, that attitude can creep into us. We got to remember this, that God so loved the world. And yet so many of us put ourselves in this position, well, we want to isolate ourselves from those people. Let's make a clear distinction, friends, of loving the world's people while hating the world's system. Okay? You can do both. People are trapped in darkness in the world's system. That is no reason for us to hate and despise them. When we start calling our families godly, our church fit, we are the godly ones. We are holy, right? And we must avoid all contamination with the world. Now, there's, a, there's of course, we do not go and do the things they do. We do not engage in those type of activities, but we love them. We care for them. We see them as opportunities for the gospel to change their lives. We love the world's people. We hate the world's system. Compare John 3.16 with 1 John 2.15-17, and you'll, I think, see what I'm saying there. Zacchaeus goes to his home with Jesus, and the grace of Jesus transforms him so that he announces at the end of our story, Behold, Lord, I'm giving half of my goods to the poor, and if I have defrauded anybody, I'm going to give it back fourfold. This is way over the top compared to what the law demanded you give back when you cheated people. He was making amends that were far and away um, greater than what the law demanded. Verse 9 and 10 then says, Jesus pronounces salvation has come to this house, describing the restored relationship that each person enjoys with God when they find themselves delivered from their sins. I heard it said many, many years ago that when Christ comes, things change. When Christ comes, things change. Zacchaeus didn't give all of his stuff to the poor and return fourfold the people he cheated. Can you imagine how humiliating that would be to go door to door, house by house, person by person, say, I cheated you a dollar, here's four. I cheated you ten dollars, here's forty. He didn't do that to merit the attention and love and saving work of Christ. He did it because of the saving work of Christ. The danger that the world has is say, I'm going to do these works to merit Jesus' salvation. No, no, no. You just receive his salvation and then the works follow that. You see the difference? The whole world believes, they're wrapped up in this belief that if I do better, if I try harder, they, they, they often will have that cut to the heart response of Acts 2. They will have that conviction. They will say, 
what must I do? And they go the wrong way. They say, I'll just try harder. I'll do better. I'll overcome those bad things I've done. No, you just repent of them. You tell the Lord you are sorrowful over your past sins and that you receive his salvation. And then the works prove, they prove that you really did receive Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Jesus calls Zacchaeus, I mentioned this already, a son of Abraham. That would be a very, it's, it's, he's not just calling him a Jew, which he most likely was. A son of Abraham in the Bible can mean a physical descendant. I don't know if there's any Jews in here today, then you would be a son of Abraham in a physical descendant standpoint. But that is not what Jesus is referring to him as. He says he is a son of Abraham. A very important verse that you might cross-reference later this afternoon that describes sons of Abraham as spiritual descendants is Galatians 3.7. Galatians 3.7. Here's what it says. All who have faith are sons of Abraham. All who have faith are sons of Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham, right? Abraham in the Old Testament was asked to do two different things. First, he was asked to leave his home and go to a country that he'd never heard of. He gets up and does it. Then he was asked to kill his only son, Isaac. He was asked to take him up onto a mountain and sacrifice him to God. And he did it. God, of course, intervened and stopped him before he did that. But in Romans chapter 4, it tells us that because Abraham did those things in faith, that faith counted him for righteousness. Here's how salvation works in just a quick and brief nutshell because i want to make i want to make uh three quick applications and here's the first okay so let, let's move to applications because i'm kind of starting to do that so let's let's make three ap- let's make three applications real quick first is this salvation involves a desperate cry of recognizing our sin and seeing christ as the only solution i know that's kind of long salvation involves the desperate cry of recognizing our sin and seeing Christ as the only solution. What is faith? Faith is believing the invisible. It's seeing the eternal. It's not needing proof to just enter into an acknowledgement of facts and agreeing with what those facts state about Jesus and about me and then applying those facts to my life. It is crying out to God like the blind man saying, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I have violated your laws. This is me too. I have. All of us in the room have. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is his righteousness. But if we simply by faith say, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. To bear my shame and all the scoffing and the rude remarks and the comments. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God, was He. That is the, that is the acknowledgement. It's, it's not a high opinion of Jesus that saves anyone. It is a true opinion of Jesus. People can have a high opinion of Jesus. Oh, He's a great teacher. Oh, He's a good man. Oh, He's the Son of God. But if they don't believe truly that He is the Savior and we are the sinner, No one can have salvation. So you must today in faith cry out to God as desperately as the blind man. Say, I'm a sinner. I can do nothing about it. But I praise and thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sin in my place that I may have salvation. And when you exercise that faith, when you just believe that in your heart and mind, 
God gives you righteousness. It is a transaction that we can't see or feel. We don't go, ooh, that felt. It's, it's not emotional. It is, just a, it is just a settled fact that happens. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. It's as if Christ lived your life and you lived his. He took your sins and you got his righteousness. It's a beautiful thing. And I encourage all of you, just like I said, urgently, hurry today. Cry out to him to be saved. Secondly, second application. True faith is always accompanied by works of repentance and a life of discipleship. I know it's long again, but true faith is always accompanied by works of repentance and a life of discipleship. In both stories, we see that. The blind man, in verse number 43 uh, of Luke 18, says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus. He starts living a life of following Jesus. Folks, I have a dear friend I've been talking to about the gospel over and over and over again, and the thing that is keeping that person from the gospel is the realization. He, he understands that things will have to change, and he doesn't want to receive Christ because he knows things will change. Even saying things like, well, I have to go to church, well, I have to read my... I mean, and I, I say to him, friend... If you truly receive Christ, those things will all become just a joy to you. You'll want to do those things. But, but the repentance that Zacchaeus demonstrated is even greater. The idea of repaying people and giving to the poor. And that's why Jesus can say, hey, truly, salvation has come. What does it really mean to follow Christ? It is not just a decision. It is not a choice necessarily we make. It is a discipleship. It is a lifestyle. It is, it is something that we do for the rest of our lives. Third and final application. And thanks for listening so well. I'm just about done is this. Jesus notices the unnoticed and loves the unloved. We must do the same. Jesus notices the unnoticed and loves the unloved. I want to go back to those verses. Verse 40, Jesus stopped. Verse 5, Jesus looked up. Aren't you glad that Jesus answered you when you called? He I think, I think we as a church and I personally must do a better job of noticing people that the world doesn't notice. Of loving people that the world doesn't love. Of receiving people that the world thinks is unworthy. Of giving mercy and the gospel to people who think they are undeserving, just like we saw in our story today. Jesus answers the poor, the outsider. He answers the wealthy. He answers the outcast. He answers all who will call for his attention. His love for both of these individuals is on display in both of these accounts. But how often we are like the crowds, silencing those we feel are unworthy of Jesus, protesting and judging others, not giving ourselves our time and our efforts for other people. It does not matter what we say. Our actions expose what we truly value. Perhaps our attitudes towards the undeserving is actually rooted in the self-righteousness I described earlier when we view ourselves, our families, our friends as the godly ones, that we put others in a position that Christ has never put them in. Where would we all be without the grace and mercy of Christ? We'd be living our best life now. We'd be involved in some deep and tragic sin, totally unaware of the compassion that Christ had. Praise God he stooped down to save an undeserving sinner like me. It is now my responsibility to notice those unnoticed people and take the love and compassion of Christ to them. It's your responsibility to do that too, unless you're unsaved, and we urge you to trust Christ today.
Father in heaven, we thank you for these dear friends who've gathered today, each one. I'm so thankful for everybody who's here, each chair that has a person in it. Thankful for each one. Thankful for their fine attention. And I pray that everything that I, that, that was foolish or trite would be quickly forgotten, but that the truths from these stories would be long remembered. And God, that you would work in the hearts of anyone in here who needs Christ. If I've loved the gospel, if I haven't made it real clear, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that and convict and convince each one that Christ is the answer. Let us, Father, love those that the world has discarded. Let us make time for people. Christ, in a hurry, busy, determined to die, stopped and looked. Help us to follow in those same footsteps, to do those same things as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.